Hello friends. This week on What's in the Basket we're taking a break from our spooky series to talk about a different kind of horror movie, but rest assured we have one more cursed film dropping on November 3rd to soothe your election adult nurse. Finally, a content warning. Today's films both focus on sexual assault, and our conversation reflects that. Listener discretion is advised. Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo-Boo, hello to Scooby-Doo, Barney and Brad Pitt. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Um, Trump has Corona. He has it. Kellyanne has it. Uh, RNC Chairwoman McDaniel has it. Three Republican senators so far. Just Melania has it. Lots of people. Lots of people are currently ill with the coronavirus. Not Pence yet, um, because mother makes him wear a mask. But soon. Chris Christie. Chris Christie. Yeah. And of course, uh, Patient Zero, um, Hope Hicks, of course. And probably very soon, a lot of other people. And like all the fucking Dems coming out and being like thoughts and prayers hope he gets better it's like no i think now's the time to stop being nice i think it's just so pathetic because you have someone you know a doormat like biden being like thoughts and prayers to the president for a you know a speedy recovery and you know that if biden got sick trump would be like sleepy joe's on death's doorstep god's punishing him for the hair sniffing which he probably is god will punish him for the hair sniffing but it's like you know this man has sat and done nothing when over two hundred thousand people in his country have died like i'm sorry i'm not sympathetic yeah, thoughts and prayers go out to um, the staff at Walter Reed, anyone who works at the White House outside of the administration, um, anyone who has to interact with any of these assholes anywhere else, you know? I feel bad for, yeah. like, the pilot on Air Force One when Hope Hicks was, like, you know, had her, her zombie movie moment. But those are the only people I care about. Fuck off. I feel like they're really hoping for some kind of, like, Kevin Klein Dave situation where they can find a lookalike to stand in. Imagine looking like Trump. Somebody else with that thick ass you could <laughs> balance a Scrabble board on. Also, uh, the line of succession for the United States presidency. This is very interesting. Did not know this. Once you get past Speaker of the House and... Uh, President pro tem of the Senate, you get to the members of the president's cabinet, and the cabinet positions are listed in order of establishment. So Homeland Security is the last on the list. So the Secretary of Agriculture takes precedence, which I think kicks ass, actually. <laughs> well, we can only hope that they've had to invoke this line of succession uh, in the time that it's taken us to record this and the date of posting. I mean, in other COVID-related news, I left my house for the first time in nine weeks today, and my cat lost his mind. <laughs> he was apparently screaming throughout the house, wondering where I was. So we're going to have to work on that, that separation anxiety, I 
He forgot that outside existed. Yeah. Well, it's not that he's, like, he doesn't ever want to go outside, which is good because he's an inside cat. And I think really all cats should be inside cats, especially in a place like where I live where there's a lot of wildlife. But yeah, he doesn't even like it if I'm in the bathroom for too long. So. (laughs) Well, you know who wishes that he'd kept his pet inside? Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck wishes (laughs) that that had happened. He wishes that he had not been such a terrible pet owner and such a terrible father and really actually kind of a bad lawyer. Like, all the things that Gregory Peck is yep. in this movie. All the things. Well, what a wonderful segue. Thank you. <laughs> I tried. You know, when I was in the bucket, all I could think about was busting out and killing somebody. I wanted to kill him with my bare hands. Slow. Every single night for seven years, I killed that man. And on the eighth year, I said, oh, no, that's too easy. That's too fast. You know, the Chinese death of a thousand cuts. First, they cut off a little toe, then a piece of your finger, a piece of your ear, your nose. And I like that better. A little toe, I'm to understand, child. That's it, isn't it? Now, that's your train of thought, Counselor, not mine. My train of thought. Shocking degenerate. I've seen the worst. The dregs, but you. You are the lowest. Makes me sick to breathe the same air. (laughs) Hey, Boston. I believe my cousin left me enough to buy me another blast. (laughs) Uh, Hello, everybody. Welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. I am Amelia, and as always, I'm joined by Tiff. Hi. And Candice. Hello. And today we are doing 1962's Cape Fear and also the 1991 remake Cape Fear. Twice the Cape, twice the fear. Yeah, the Cape of all fears. Yeah, this is uh, the the first film we're talking about today is the other movie Gregory Peck made in 1962 where he plays a lawyer in Georgia. <laughs> Be very different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's dog, there's dog, two dogs die in both of the movies. So, spoiler alert, if you never read To Kill a Mockingbird in high school. Well, this is also a book. I, I literally didn't know that, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's based on the 1957 novel The Executioners by John D. MacDonald. Yeah, so they are both based on books, but one of them has Robert Mitchum and one of them does not. So <laughs> I didn't even read the goddamn Wikipedia page for this movie, so that shows you the level of commitment I have. What up? I'm Jared, I'm 19, and I never fucking learned how to read. Well, I think we'll start with, with the OG, which is the original and the best. Technically a new noir psychological thriller sandwich directed by J. Lee Thompson. Uh, as we may recall from the Exorcist episode, J. Lee Thompson was the model for the character of Burke Dennings, who gets <laughs> yeeted out of Reagan's window. Uh, so glowing endorsement. <laughs> Of his directorial style. Uh, so obviously, again, as Tiff mentioned, it is set in Georgia in 1962. And it centers on Gregory Peck, who is a lawyer named Sam Bowden, who is being aggressively stalked by um, a rapist uh, named Max Cady, played by Robert Mitchum. And even though they don't say it in the film, they never ever say rape explicitly. 
Uh, it is very, I mean, it's described basically mm-hmm. and very yeah. heavily implied throughout the whole thing, which is a really interesting uh, aspect, especially to this film, because it was 1962. And obviously the uh, production code was not as strong as it once was, but it's sort of, this is kind of the precipice, like the beginning of the end in terms of what they were allowed to do. Uh, and even though it was really heavily censored, both before it went into production and after, it's quite an interesting look at, like, because it could not have been made just, like, two years earlier, this film, I reckon. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, it's, it's an interesting depiction compared to earlier depictions of rape in film. I was thinking of The Accused with Loretta Young uh, from 1949, or an outrage from 1950. We should do outrage at some point. Um, but outrage is probably, the, I, I'd say, out of that classic Hollywood canon, outrage is probably like the deftest handling of the subject, most sensitively handled in outrage, uh, I would probably say. But Cape Fear is is not um, the original version of Cape Fear. We will get into the remake. The original version of, of Cape Fear, I don't think, is really in any way disrespectful or, or exploitative. I think in large part because Peck works very well as a moral center and also because Mitchum plays it with that very particular brand of menace. It's a very human kind of evil that he really did specialize in at this point in time. So normally rape is a plot device we've decried in the past, but I Cape Fear is really one of the only movies where I think it works and it makes sense because the movie is about a very specific kind of man and the very specific kind of pain that he inflicts upon the whole world around him. Mm. I'll get into it later. Like, I was talking to Tiff about this last night. But, like, I think it's quite differently... It's quite different how each of the films treat this character and his motivations and the kind of fear that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And one of... The original is uh, much more sensitive, but also um, much more realistic in the kind of fear and horror that it evokes than the remake. But I'll I'll be getting into that later. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to give it a caveat first, because it is a movie about rape, you know. It is a movie yes, about rape. you should put the content warning on top of it, this episode. It, if that's a um, topic, yeah, that you're sensitive to, this is a topic that, that, that bothers you or disturbs you, this is probably not uh, an optimal episode. So I would say if you want the experience of Cape Fear, go watch the Simpsons episode, yeah. um, <laughs> which has 90% of the material from Cape Fear, but none of the rape. It's also more modeled on the, the remake than mm-hmm. the original. So, um, But mostly because the remake has so many moments that are so ridiculous that it's like almost beyond parody. So they just took it completely. We have places your family can hide in peace and security. Cape Fear, Terror Lake, New Horror Field, Screamville. Ooh, Ice Creamville. Uh, No, Screamville. Ah! Max Katie, um, and I should preface, Katie is spelled C-A-D-Y, like Katie Heron in Mean Girls. It's also very funny, though, if you imagine that he's being called Katie. Like, yeah, Katie well, Kirk that's how movie, yeah. Greg, Greg says it as Katie the entire time. Greg can't pronounce anything right. There's an ex-convict in town. Named him Max Katie. Thanks. And that was Max Katie. Look, Katie. How much do you want, Katie? So, Robert Mitchum begins to stalk Gregory Peck because Gregory Peck was a witness... Uh, in his rape case. And he, it feels like he holds Gregory Peck personally responsible for him ending up in prison and not the fact that he 
raped an underage girl, which is a lot of insight for a, a film made at this time. But he yeah, begins stalking him and sort of escalates in the type of I don't know, violence that he puts upon Gregory Peck. So the first act is to kill the family dog after menacing Gregory Peck in his car. And it's at this point where I'm like, well, if this happened to me and someone killed my dog, I would leave town. That yeah. would be enough for me. But Greg obviously made of tough stuff because he doesn't leave um, with his uh, wife, who he calls Piggy, and <laughs> his young daughter, Nancy. His wife is played by Polly Bergen and his daughter is Laurie Martin. There, a discussion happens over the corpse of the dead dog, which I don't appreciate. It's like a medical examiner's office. They got the sheet over the dog, and it's like, I don't need to see this. Ten to one, it was strychnine, Sam. You couldn't have saved her if you'd been twice as quick. To me, it's the same as murdering a human. It's a shame Nancy had to see it. She was meant to see it. It's a precursor to John Wick. If someone did that to Gull... I would fully go John Wick, you know? Mm -hmm. And the fact that Greg didn't, it's a bit <laughs> damning on him. Uh, <laughs> is this when Greg hires the private detective? Oh, but right before that, we have a really good moment, really cool uh, character appearance, because Bob, of course, immediately retains a lawyer. Because we learn that um, while Mitchum has been in prison, he's learned how to read. And he has learned specifically how to read law books. He's got some he's got some book learning now. So he immediately retains a lawyer who it's a really interesting appearance by Jack Crucian, who most people um, probably know as Dr. Dreyfus in the apartment popping up as a Southern criminal defense lawyer. And there's even a snide kind of comment about uh, police brutality in this movie, which is uh, linked to this particular scene, which I, I find really interesting. Your friend Katie turned up with Dave Grafton. Oh, that's it. Well, got himself the right man. Not for us. Now, you know what he's like. He's one of these ardent types. You slap a cigarette out of some hoodlum's mouth, five minutes later he's down to May's office yelling police brutality, rallying a bleeding heart squad. Yeah, because they haul him in to the police station. And the police in this movie largely useless to the entire situation. Well, Martin and... Balsam is never a, a useful police officer. <laughs> yeah. As we learned in Psycho, um, he's not... Yeah, he's not the best. A-cab. But they pull him in, and we'll, I'll just say, Robert Mitchum's wardrobe in this, <laughs> incredible. On point. It's like a Panama hat, kind of like, it's not quite a bomber jacket. It's like a sport coat that looks... It's very um, Boca del Vista, Seinfeld, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he looks like Seinfeld's dad. Yes, he does look like Morty Seinfeld. And also the fact that Mitchum is so closely identified with the Panama hat that when Peck describes him to people, he's like a man in a Panama hat. <laughs> like, like well, he can't take he's the hat right, off. though, because he wears it the whole fucking time. <laughs> it's like glued to his head. And he's like wearing like a bowling shirt. And speaking of that, like, he's dressed like he's going to go bowling the entire movie. And he, in fact, does not go bowling, but Gregory Peck and his family go bowling, and Robert Mitchum follows them to the bowling alley where he uh, hits on Barry Chase. I say hits on, but more menaces is the word. Uh, no, he menaces the waitress at the bowling alley. 
which Greg refers to as the bowling center. He's stopping this afternoon after court, and he showed up again this evening at the bowling center. Which I don't think was right. Even <laughs> in 1962. No, I don't. Th- I don't think bowling center is a thing. But but yeah, later on he does. He meets Barry Chase in the bar. Greg just couldn't say bowling alley right, and they did like six <laughs> takes, and it kept coming out like bowling alley or something, bowling alley, and they were just like, just say bowling center. <laughs> um, no, but it's like I feel like Gregory Peck perhaps did not partake in recreation. And that's why it was so foreign to him. <laughs> well, you do know the story about what happened to his back. Gregory Peck famously became a movie star because he didn't have to fight in World War II. He was declared 4F because of a slipped disc in his back. And part of the propaganda at that time was you had to explain to moviegoers why it was that this individual was not off, you know, risking life and limb for his country. Uh, you famously got the whole Van Johnson, he's got a goddamn plate in his head, leave him alone kind of a thing. But Gregory Peck, um, the the official story, it's not specific, I don't think specific to any given studio, because Peck was really the first movie star to start out as a a freelancer. So that, just keep that in your pocket, because that's kind of an interesting little historical tidbit. He was able to do that because they were so desperate for young male leads at that point in time. But he, the story was that he had slipped a disc while on the rowing team at Berkeley, Gregory Peck was, I don't think, was on the rowing team at Berkeley. He had slipped a disc in ballet class while training under Martha Graham. He was doing a routine themed after uh, modern times. Oh, Oh my God. The Chaplin movie. And he slipped a disc. And that's why he couldn't fight in the war. So Gregory Peck, I don't think, did recreation because he was so stiff that he, he was in ballet class for about 15 minutes and destroyed well, his spine. Well, that explains why he, like, runs like David Byrne. <laughs> um, but also, if they had to explain why they were not going to war, how come we don't know why Dana didn't go to war? You know, <laughs> that's a really good point. That's a really I good point. I want the records. <laughs> Freedom of Information Act request just on Dana's draft record. Because we, he's not, I don't think he's, I don't think he's at the cutoff. Like, I know Joel was too old. Because Joel was born in 1905, Dana was born in 1909. So it's somewhere between the two that you get the point where they're like, we don't need you. Also, Joel couldn't read. Joel also couldn't read. That was admittedly a bit of a barrier, but I'm not really convinced Gregory (laughs) Peck could read either. So judging by the way he pronounces the word trespass in this movie. It'll be more than simple trespass, but I won't wait until he wipes the blood off his hands either. But yeah, after the sort of stripped down search of Robert Mitchum at the police station where he's really quite cocky because he gets off um, his lawyer sort of gets him out of, you know, the situation uh, where he does strip down and it's like, man, they used to think this was good, huh? Um, the sort of barrel-chested man boob situation. He's sucking in Robert his gut Mitchum so hard. Going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, may as well be wearing a girdle. <laughs> but yeah, it's after this that uh, Gregory Peck hires um, a private detective to sort of follow uh Mitchum in his day-to-day and in the interim Robert Mitchum is being devious uh and this is sort of when he picks up Barry Chase at the at the bar and brutally assaults her it's like some kind of message to Greg like that he he knows Greg will see Mm -hmm. it's definitely much more effective in this version and the police try and get Barry Chase to you know, testify against him so that they finally have something on him so they can hold him. 
uh, but she is so scared and she doesn't want to be associated with it. She is worried about her reputation and the kind of infamy that would surround her if she did testify. Um, and she's also very scared of, you know, Mitchum. Yeah, retribution, because as the private detective notes, and he says this like it's a good thing, if he gets, you know, convicted here, he will get six months in prison. Yeah. Now you file an assault charge and Katie will get six months in jail. Six months. And after that, when he walked out of this room, he said, he said to consider this only a sample. From my limited knowledge of human nature, Max Cady isn't a man who makes idle threats. Do you believe that I could ever, ever, in my whole life, step up and repeat to another living soul what that man, what he did? What about my family? I'm someone's daughter, too. What about the newspapers in my hometown? Do you think I could bear to have them read about? And it's just like, considering even now we don't treat rape as seriously as we should, she was probably well-founded in her reluctance to testify, and she skips town, understandably. I have, I have two things here I wanted to share, because I don't know if I'm going to be able to shoehorn them in later. One, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but the private detective that Greg hires is played by Telly Savalas, a.k.a. Kojak, when he still had hair. Very disturbing. Also, Barry Chase, not fun fact, sad fact, weird fact. Do you guys know who Barry Chase's father was? No. Barry Chase's father was Borden Chase, the screenwriter. He wrote uh, Red River. Weird guy, anti-commie activist, you know, anti-red in Hollywood. One of those, you know, preservation of motion picture ideal assholes. Staunch Republican, the whole thing. Uh, He married her sister. He married her older half-sister. His huh. he, he left his wife what? for her own daughter. Oh, okay. But it's That's the communists the that are the problem. So anyway, mm. now you can't watch Red River ever again without thinking about that. More men should be put in jail. For six whole months. <laughs> I mean, you know, so again, this is the world in which this film is being made. I guess the next step after that, when they can't get Barry Chase to testify, is uh, Greg decides to hire the, the toughs to beat him up. Yeah, under the boardwalk. Which, I mean... There are three of them. Like us. And still Mitchum <laughs> comes out on top. Just like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess Mitchum has that sort of scrappy, like, never back down quality, which is quite believable that he, he could probably best three guys. Illiterate energy. <laughs> Just got a little extra boost there. <laughs> um, yeah, but it backfires and that, isn't that when the court scene happens and Robert Mitchum's lawyer is like, tries to get Greg disbarred. Yeah. Which is like, Greg going Greg, you couldn't have like covered up some tracks perhaps? I don't know. I feel like at every turn Greg is not doing a good job. Yeah, and because Jack Crucian is like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it up to have you disbarred. And then Greg's like, well, uh, aren't, don't you think they're going to wait for my felony conviction for beating, having the shit kicked out of Robert Mitchum? And then Jack Christian's like, with a weird Southern accent, is like, uh, no, the ethics board doesn't care about convictions. Just the, the fact that you're even touching this at all. The fact that you're even peripherally involved in this is very bad for the profession. You stupid asshole. And Greg's just like, mm, see about that. It's like, okay. 
whatever. <laughs> he doesn't seem concerned at all for any of the consequences, any of the repercussions that, that could happen in this movie. He's really very nonchalant about it, while also, again, trying to have a man killed, which I think is a, a very uh, very respectable attitude. Very free way to live, isn't it? He's got no yeah. no worries, huh? Um, yeah. But also, I mean, he's not quite doing enough because he's, like, not going out there with the, a shotgun and, like, shooting Rob, Robert Mitchum in the knees. So, like, I, know. I don't know. It's it's a lot and also not enough. Like most liberals. Like all liberals. That's not saying most because I just mean all. But <laughs> I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> it's sort of like after this that Robert Mitchum's menacing amps up even more he starts to target greg's daughter who he describes as juicy which is extremely disturbing and there's a scene in particular that like it boggles the mind because nancy is in the car nancy's the daughter um, and polly bergen has gone off and left her in the car i mean it's not like nancy's five she's like what 14 yeah anyway so nancy sees robert mitchum and then gets out of the car and just starts running around, like, <laughs> trying to get away from him. And it's like, I mean, you could have just stayed in the car with the doors locked. Yeah, she runs back into the school, which, since it's after school hours, nobody's cleared there. out. Yeah, just sort of running around all over the place. And it's like, Nancy makes a lot of questionable decisions. But, I mean, I guess they're, I don't know if they're understandable for a 14-year-old girl, but... I feel like when I was 14, I wouldn't be doing that. But, you know. In doing this, she manages to get herself hit by a car. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Very good content. <laughs> yeah, which is, it's a hilarious shot, admittedly. And I'm the driver who's just like, she just, she ran out in front of me. Like, he's primarily concerned that his insurance company is getting called. He's like, she just ran out in front of me. I don't know. <laughs> and then Polly Bergen shows up and she's like, Nancy, Nancy. And he's like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> Well, in fairness, he, like, she did just run that in front of me. right, yeah. And it's, like, after this that Greg concocts this plan. It's an absolutely foolproof plan that he's going to take his family to their houseboat in um, Cape Fear, North Carolina, while making it appear like he's going to Atlanta. So sort of a old switcheroo situation, but... It all falls down, though, because Robert Mitchum is not so stupid. Can I just say, we're, we're missing the insane altercation at the dock with the man in the sunglasses. Oh, yeah. T Todd's favorite moment, I think, in the movie. Yeah, yeah. We get a scene before the big, uh, the big plan where Mitchum follows them to, like, a day at the beach or whatever. And Greg, like, punches him in the face and this crowd gathers around them. And there's an absolutely bizarre extra in the background who's like i don't have a picture of him on me right now i wish i did i should have taken a screenshot he's like sunglasses. <laughs> picture of him on me like it'd be in your wallet <laughs> <laughs> he's got like sunglasses he's got like his top few buttons undone but the way he looks is like straight out of 1983 like i think this like is a time traveler car dealer it's yeah it's absolutely bizarre anyway i love that guy i'll post him on the twitter when this goes up he's crazy it yeah it's that's Sort of when they're all having fun on, on the boat, which Greg is not poor in this movie. Let's just <laughs> he, say that. He, like, owns a plantation. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, did, were there, is this a, an antebellum, <laughs> you know? Is this where Blake Lively and Ryan Reynolds got married? Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's this huge house and, like, then they have a boat and then Nancy's there being like, oh, when can we get that huge super yacht, dad? And it's like, are you for real? Anyway. Oh, also, uh, Mitchum's got like a, like a sailor shirt on, right? 
with like a boat. He's just crawler. vibing. He's just vibing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got his his striped like Popeye Looking shirt. Like goddamn Marcel Marceau out there. <laughs> <laughs> he's um. He's just you know. He's doing him. He's out of prison, living fancy free. So it really yeah. just looks like Peck is assaulting a mime on his day off. <laughs> well, we've all been there, you know. <laughs> we've all been there. Absolutely. But yeah, so they they go to their houseboat, and I I just do not understand the appeal of a houseboat. I just don't think that it would be a fun place to stay. But that's just me. I don't know about you guys. I've never uh, been on a houseboat. Yeah. Well, we can't all be Grimes, can we? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Greg's plan sort of goes to shit because obviously Robert Mitchum's not an idiot. Uh, and can read now. And he menaces the woman at the flight desk for information about Greg and where he's going. And I mean, to be fair, know. he doesn't have to menace that hard because of the total lack of airline security in 1962. She's just kind of yeah. like, here's everything about this trip. He just has, basically has to pretend that he has to give Greg some important business information, some important law stuff. We got some legalings that have to occur. And she's just like, oh yeah, he's on the plane. He'll be back later. Um, I can give you his flight number. I can even leave his CDs on. I mean, she wants Greg to get killed. There's probably a history there. Say, I have a brief here for Sam Bowden. Samuel Bowden. Yes, sir. Was he on that flight 403? Yes, sir, he was. Now, I don't know whether to mail it to him or not. You don't have any idea when he'll be back, do you? He did make a return reservation, sir. 6 p.m. on Thursday. Well, and I guess special delivery will get it to him, all right? Thank you. You're welcome. But Greg sort of expects that Robert Mitchum's going to follow his wife and daughter to Cape Fear, and he sort of sets up this whole thing like he's going to hide and use his wife and daughter as bait. Which is very questionable, because his wife and daughter are not aware of this plan, or this aspect of the plan. And so uh, Greg and the local, is it the local sheriff or whatever it is, do this sort of stakeout in the swamp, waiting for Robert Mitchum to show himself and attack them. Which he does. Robert Mitchum appears, and it's like, this is the coolest sort of sequence in the movie. The entire like ending in the swamp. It's lit really beautifully. The contrast is really rich and you get a lot of interesting shots, including the one where Robert Mitchum looks like an alligator. <laughs> He's gliding. floating through the swamp. Really? <laughs> Honestly, like, I love it because in the lead up to the sequence, he spent like a week or whatever, like dicking around Telly Savalas back home because Telly keeps calling and he's like, I just can't get him to follow me anywhere because they're trying to plant, you know, like Telly goes back to Peck's house and he does kind of like a fake like package exchange, I guess, with a maid and he like keeps like going off on these like little like mini road trips and like pulling over and then Bob is nowhere to be found and he keeps calling Greg and he's like I I don't he's not falling for it and then because the answer is is because Mitchum is just kind of mentally preparing himself probably via meditation to do this excellent floating (laughs) entry you know it it required a lot of mental energy a lot of precision you know I don't know how he does it honestly because I'm not sure I'm sure it's a set, but at the same time, it's like, how deep is this tank? Like, is Robert Mitchum walking on the floor of the tank? He's skateboarding. <laughs> skateboarding? <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's it's really intense scene, and this is sort of, 
I guess, the scene that the film is most famous for, the houseboat climax. Robert Mitchum, he kills the sheriff's deputy or whatever. Uh, He drowns him, which is brutal. He gets away from Greg and cuts the houseboat loose from its moorings. And he proceeds to attack um, Polly Bergen uh, on the boat. And this is sort of where the scene with the eggs happens, which is quite disturbing. If you touch me, you'll go back to prison for life. You want to make a little bet on that? But you will. I'm not like Nancy. I'm not afraid to testify. I swear it. You've got to believe me. I'm not afraid. And you're a lawyer's wife. Don't you understand? That with consent, there are no charges against me. Now look. I want you to hear this. It's going to save a lot of messing around. Uh, look. I was going to go for Nancy. But uh, I can always make it with Nancy, you know, next week, next month. Wait a minute now. You proposition me. You instead of Nancy. And I'll agree never to see you again, all right? Listen, unless, of course, you want it. And that's how you give your consent. And that's not consent, it's blackmail! Um, and apparently the egg scene was spur-of-the-moment decision. Before the scene was filmed, Thompson suddenly told a crew member, bring me a dish of eggs. Mitchum's rubbing the eggs on Bergen was not scripted, and Bergen's reactions were real. Imagine just being, like, rubbed with an egg. All in a day's work, huh? Um, And it's quite a brutal scene that happens. Um, They sort of knock around. Uh, Apparently, Bergen got a few serious back injuries from being knocked around so much. Uh, and Mitchum cut open his hand, and uh, they had to physically stop them from fighting. But it's then that Greg realizes that something's going on, or is it after he realizes that Nancy's on the shore? And oh no, that's right, because Greg comes lumbering into the fucking houseboat like lurch. Oh right, yeah. Um, yeah. You're around <laughs> the corner, and it's like, what's going on here? And like, after Peck checks the individual bunks. Like, he's so slow in checking this houseboat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's looking under blankets. I don't know why he thought he was the best person to run this sort of complicated entrapment scenario, because, like, he's been bad at it the whole time. He, like, let a guy die. Um, He wasn't able to stop his wife getting assaulted with some eggs. Like, I don't know why Greg thought he could do this. But anyway, it all culminates on this sort of fight where Greg sort of, he, he shoots Bob, and and then it, this is the best part I think in how Robert's Robert Mitchum's character work is like he's like well go on do it finish the job kind of feeling which I think that Clint Eastwood stole this persona completely, mm-hmm. but instead Greg obviously the moral center of this movie is like well no actually I'd rather you rot in prison for the rest of your life. Go ahead, I just don't give a damn. No. No. That would be letting you off too easy. Too fast. Your words, do you remember? And I do. Oh, no. 
We're gonna take good care of you. We're gonna nurse you back to health. And you're strong, Katie. You're gonna live a long life in a cage. That's where you belong. And that's where you're going. And this time, for life, bang your head against the walls. Count the years, the months, the hours, until the day you rot. And that's the original, and I think it's very effective in both the characterization and the way that it tells its story. Definitely much more than the the remake, which I guess we'll discuss in a minute. But in terms of it as a complete film, I know that at the time it was not commercially successful. I think it led to the downfall of Greg's production company. Greg produced this movie. What kind of multi hyphenate king. <laughs> Triple threat. Triple threat. Um. Yeah, he can uh, he can walk, kind of. He can talk, kind of. And he can he can produce a movie. Um, But yeah, I think it led to the downfall of his production company, which is a shame because I think that of its time, it's a really, I guess, complete movie um, and definitely does a great job of writing that space between, you know, noir and horror and thriller, which I think makes it really unique. And the tension throughout the whole film is palpable, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is something that's really lost in the remake because the remake is so fucking long and drags abominably Mm -hmm. whereas this one it never feels that way but you're still sort of on the edge of your seat the entire time there are little things that i appreciate about the remake that i kind of wish were present in this but not like the way they're done in the remake just like the general idea like i wish that like in the remake jessica lynch is like a a much more consequential part than polly bergen does and i just really love polly bergen a really wonderful actress that really no one talks about anymore but a really really wonderful dramatic actress uh, of her time and really i think very severely underutilized in this movie because she's kind of just there to be kind of sounding board for greg's wacky schemes and also to threaten to call the police when he threatens to go out and shoot bob square in the nuts you know um, which you should have let him do. Yeah. Personally, you should have let him take a tire iron to Greg's, I mean, to, to his own kneecaps. <laughs> Greg take a tire iron to his own kneecaps. That too, she should have let him do that. But, um, yeah, I love Polly Bergen. Uh, love to tell the truth. Big fan. You know what Polly Bergen's last movie was? You're never going to guess. I would never guess. Uh, I only know this because I'm on Wikipedia right now. Uh, 2012's Struck by Lightning, starring Chris Colfer from Glee. <laughs> what an end to a storied career. It would have been cool to see Chris Colfer and Robert Mitchum do a movie together, but <laughs> Robert Mitchum should have lived long enough to be on Glee. Well, apparently he wasn't immediately on board to do this movie. Um, he was reluctant to take on the part, but apparently after Gregory Peck and J. Lee Thompson sent a case of bourbon to his home, he replied, okay, I've drunk your bourbon, I'm drunk, I'll do it. <laughs> uh, which is very on brand for... <laughs> I like your segue right there because it implies that Cape Fear, unlike Glee, was something that he had to be persuaded into, you know, that he would have been very eager to do Glee, just on its artistic merits. I love the concept of Robert Mitchum pissing into Ryan Murphy's car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be really good. I wish that had happened. I keep getting headlines 
about all the different Ryan Murphy projects. It's like, you want to know more about Ryan Murphy's visionary boys? And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't want to know. Oh, the other thing to mention is that apparently Greg and Robert Mitchum did not get on. Shocking. Um, shockingly, they did not get on. And they try to make a big deal of it because they're both in the remake in, um, you know, little cameo roles. I guess Robert Mitchum's is like fully a role, but they're also not in a scene together in it. And they try to make a, a big deal of that. It's like, oh man, they still hated each other even then. I'm like, I think they're too old and beyond hating at that point. I wonder if it was kind of like um, the situation in the movie we just watched, Deathline, where they couldn't use uh, Christopher Lee and Donald Pleasance in the same <laughs> shot because of the radical height difference. Well, the thing is, though, they they don't have that radical of a height difference between them. What, Greg was 6'3 and Robert was 6'1? No, Greg is on lifts. <laughs> <laughs> Greg is actually wearing, like, Alan Ladd-style uh, Apple box platforms. <laughs> The whole movie. Milo tins, like, that's why, clomping around. That's why he's so slow coming back to the houseboat. <laughs> <laughs> he's wearing, like, moon shoes, and it's taking him a long time, you know, <laughs> to jump from place to place. <laughs> well, I do have a quote um, regarding Peck's feelings on it. Um, I had given him the role and had paid him a terrific amount of money. It was obvious he had the better role. I thought he would understand that, but he apparently thought he acted me off the screen. I didn't think highly of him for that. And it's like, Greg, he did. Yeah, he was right. He really did. Um, Robert Mitchum is incredibly great in this movie um, and acts circles around Greg, but I think that is just Greg I'm uh, I'm going to say... I I am not a big Greg fan. It's not hard to act circles around Greg. Children do it often. And I think that's absolutely a Greg problem. I I feel like almost being like, (laughs) Mitchum thought he outacted me. It's like Mitchum could outact anyone, A. Yeah. And because he's Robert Mitchum. And talk about one of the unheralded greats of the form. If Robert Mitchum had been British, he would have had a ton of Oscars. You know, uh, it's just because, you know, he wasn't quite frankly, that he virtually ends up, I think, in terms of his, his acting acumen, always a, a very underappreciated actor. Uh, I think I think Mitchum's an actor's actor. I think a lot of actors respect Mitchum, but I don't think that uh, critics respected Mitchum. I think that's a pretty uncontroversial statement to make. But it's not hard to act circles around Greg. I feel like I could act circles around Greg. I feel like we could in this movie. I think Greg's greatest virtue um, is that he normalized having thick eyebrows, um, <laughs> which I personally appreciate because I also have thick eyebrows. So Greg is a wonderful movie star, but uh, it reminds me of the idea that when Billy Wilder wasn't getting the performance he wanted out of Jack Lemmon, he would remind him, you know, he not only would he say, you know, what are you, Tony Randall, but he'd also say, you know, you've twice lost the Oscar to very inferior talents. One was Charlton Heston, one was Gregory Peck, you know. <laughs> so the idea that Gregory Peck being bad at acting is a motivational tool utilized by Billy Wilder is, that hurts. It doesn't hurt me because it's true. And also I'm not Gregory Peck, but if I were Gregory Peck, I'd be hurt. Well, thank God you're not. I think the other uh, really great aspect of this film is the score.
I think it's in a similar vein of Night of the Hunter in that kind of like bombastic, loud score that heightens tension. It's uh, what Bernard Herman. Yeah, it's Bernard Herman. Special. We were pretty mean to in the Exorcist episode uh, because he was a bit of a little bitch. But, you know. <laughs> he writes good music on occasion. <laughs> when he wants to. And, of course, we, we must acknowledge that this is a score that I believe all three of us were first introduced to, not through this movie or through the remake, but through The Simpsons. Yeah. Through so, The Simpsons. Yeah. One of those things. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's incredibly good at capturing the, the fear. On Cape Fear. On Cape Fear. Why do they call it Cape Fear? Oh, uh, because that's the name of the place. I know that's the name. I'm saying, what's, why is the place called Cape Fear? I don't know. Ask people in North Carolina. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. Oh, the name was Cape Fair. And um... Gregory Peck couldn't pronounce it, so they changed it to... <laughs> So I guess what happened was they found a warning near the mouth of the river left by the New Englanders of the ill-fated colony earlier that year, which disparaged the country and warned against settlement there. So I guess it was called Cape Fair, and they were like, nah, man, this isn't Cape Fair, this is Cape Fear. (laughs) (laughs) That is really funny. That's something we would do. All right, well, I guess guess we can move on on to the remake, which is decidedly different and yet the same in many ways. Basically, if you've seen the Simpsons episode, it's basically that, but for 128 minutes. <laughs> and with none of the jokes. Not funny, not enjoyable, not fun to watch. No, it's just long. It's a very long movie, and it's, I think, quite an indictment of Martin Scorsese as a director. Yeah, I think, because in the original, you can see that, obviously, J. Lee Thompson was quite inspired by Hitchcock in some of his decisions that he's made and like some of the way that it looks and some of the shots it's quite Hitchcockian but um the whole fixation plotline the constant cat and mouse is kind of like a geriatric strangers on a train yeah you know at the at the old folks home just imagine um them in Panama hats on that train but yeah with Scorsese's version you can really see that he's trying to ape Hitchcock in a way that isn't like good. It feels cheap. Like some of the shots that focus on particular things, like all the zooms yeah. and the tracking shots, at, like especially at the end with the gun flying through the air, they just feel really cheesy. It feels like a Brian De Palma movie without the sense of style or the sense of irony, and it therefore feels it feels very juvenile. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like. Scorsese was kind of like, what's an old movie that I can do that no one really remembers so that then people will give me credit for things that I'm not responsible for? Kind of well, like, like that. Spielberg terrible. was going to do this one originally. Like the the option had been up for this movie for a while and Spielberg was like, hmm, it's a bit violent, so I'll do Schindler's List instead. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, and so Scorsese picked up this after working on Goodfellas and... Yeah, just, like, made it really bad is essentially what he did. So in his cast, he has Nick Nolte in the Gregory Peck role, uh, Robert De Niro in the Robert Mitchum role. God, I just got so confused <laughs> reading that cast list because Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum are also in this version. This is Gregory Peck's last movie, which is quite an indictment on his career. Um, Gregory Peck is in the Polly Bergen role, and <laughs> Robert Mitchum. <laughs> and Jessica Lange is the Polly Bergen role, and Juliette Lewis is the daughter, which she obviously takes on a more active role in this version. 
Oh, and also Ileana Douglas is in this. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's like the, the Barry Chase. Chase. She's the uh, Barry Chase role, and um, she's got that Hollywood royalty with some Melly D blood in there. The patron saint of this podcast. Come on the pod. I loved you on TCM. Let's talk about your lineage. I thought you were saying come on the pod, Melly D. I'm like, what, through seance? Like, what we're, are we we're gonna doing? have to do a seance at some point. He needs to but know. If we were doing a seance, we weren't we wouldn't be bringing him. It would be Ronk. That's who we're doing the seance for. Maybe Ronk doesn't answer. I think we should specify for our listeners that Melly D is Melvin Douglas, who is Ileana Douglas's yes. grandfather, because I actually didn't know that until like this year. Yes. <laughs> and if you don't know who Melvin Douglas is, is. You don't want to know. It's the whole thing. It's a black hole you're going to enter and you're, you're never going to be able to come out of it because you're just going to one look into those eyes. Um, but anyway, we love Melvin Douglas on this podcast. Him and his big ears. But yeah, so it takes on a very, I mean, it's obviously the change in decade has quite an impact on some of the tone in this movie. Um, Robert De Niro is covered in tattoos like Die Bart Die. Well, what about that tattoo on your chest? Doesn't it say die, Bart, die? No, that's German for the Bart, the. No one who speaks German could be an evil man. This cool, like, clown tattoo. Yeah, I do love the clown tattoo, yeah. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if he had Ben Affleck's tattoo? (laughs) (laughs) Um... Um, and he's like, it's uh, it's the same story, so I'm not going to recount the plot. But he obviously has learned to read, and he's affecting this crazy fucking accent the whole time. Free as a bird, apparently. You go everywhere you want with whomever. That much freedom could maybe get a fellow into trouble. What do you think? I'd like my keys. Could it be you don't remember me? Oh, yeah, sure, I remember you. You were at the movie house the oh, other night. Oh, I'm disappointed. I'm hurt. I would like the keys. Max Katie, you look the same. Maybe 15 pounds heavier. He's tr- Which is really distracting. He's trying to do kind of what we in California call a peckerwood, you know, accent. I don't know what um, that I means. Think- <laughs> yeah. In California, I think it's mostly it's supposed to be like Okies um, moved out here to the Dust Bowl, whatever. Peckerwood's also associated with white supremacy, but... Um, because a lot of the background guys are... But it's kind of like that, like, okay, again, you have to remember, I come from illiterate hillbilly stock, so I'm not being offensive when I say he's basically supposed to be, he's supposed to be an illiterate hillbilly, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, his illiteracy plays a pretty a pretty significant role in this movie, actually, because Nick Nolte has this whole thing where it's like, Nick Nolte does not like people who can't read. Um, you know, he's got a real problem with that. Uh, it's a bit of know, an elitist. bit of an elitist, yeah. Anyway, it's so it's kind of... it's. It's a, I don't even know how you would describe it. It's a very specific kind of, of Southern accent. And it's very odd to hear it coming out of Robert De Niro's mouth. And it doesn't yeah, really Yeah, I think work. that's what throws me off the most, is that it's coming out of his mouth. Um, like, if it was anyone else, I'd be like, okay, well, it's supposed to be, like, you know, a Southern accent. But with him, it's just like, no, I, I don't think this is right. This is just simply incorrect. Uh, and he's got sort of, like, a little little mullet going on or just like sort of long slicked back hair uh it's all around sort of a gross look and he wears you know some jaunty caps he's got like the but he's got the jimmy buffett boat dad thing going on (laughs) yeah and it's like i i mean i think it would have been funnier if robert mitchum was in those outfits but you know missed opportunities (laughs) 
Um, I think there's a couple of plot points that they've changed to sort of update it, but also to make it make a little bit more sense in terms of motivation. So in this one, Nick Nolte is not just a witness in his trial. He was his defense lawyer. So I think that makes the motivation a little bit more solid as to why um, De Niro's character would be so hell-bent on getting revenge um, if his defense lawyer is the one who landed him in jail. Yeah, although it's it's a, it's troubling because the evidence that Nick Nolte withheld was that the girl had, quote-unquote, like, oh, she was promiscuous. Which is, like, not really evidence. No. Because <laughs> it has nothing to do with the crime, <laughs> actually. No. And also there's another a layer of, like, marital problem going on. There's the implication that Nick Nolte has previously had an affair that they were working through, um, and then that brings into question his relationship, because in this one he has a personal relationship with the Ileana Douglas um, character who is brutally um, assaulted by De Niro, and so that brings up more tension in the marital relationship. Um, and it's... <sighs> I hate this choice. I hate it. My key problem is it's like there's already so much going on. Yeah. Uh, and this sort of just, it doesn't add to the tension in a way that enhances your understanding. It just just makes everything longer because you've got to work out this, like, marriage situation that's going on. It also on. makes the, the Jessica Lange character into, like, this weird shrew, like... Yeah, she's like this shrill harpy. Yeah, she's yeah. Like, she finds out that the Ileana Douglas character has been assaulted, and it's after that that she starts getting like weirdly jealous of her. Well, I just don't know what I hate more—that insipid tone or your stupid sophomore infidelities. Who was that? Huh? Girl that got beat up. Yes, it was a girl that got beat up. Lori Davis. I already told you she works at the county courthouse. She's a clerk. And what? Fucking interesting choice. Uh, calling from our bedroom phone. You know, why is it? Why is it that whenever I have a private phone conversation, you assume that I'm fucking someone? Huh? Why is that? That's why that psychopath chose her. Yes, right? yes, that's why he chose her. But I'm not fucking her in any way. Uh, well, oh, please, please, son of a bitch! Son of a son of a bitch! Now you cut. And like, like she does, she does have a crush on Nick Nolte or whatever. But like, her finding out that this woman has been like attacked horribly, and her response being like, "Oh, you like her or whatever," is just so gross. I hate it. It feels really misogynistic to me. It's a uh, yeah. I, I think that was totally unnecessary. And how they also make a point to, that um, he's never actually had sex with Ileana Douglas. Mm -hmm. So like any like weird like emotional affair like going on any sort of like boundary crossing as like a married man like oh it's fine they just play racquetball and he they have emotional conversations like it's like like it's all in her head it's all in it's also it's all in jessica lane's head and it's also all in Ileana douglas's head yeah you know what i mean this has nothing to do with nick nolte she makes the move and then nick nolte sort of rebuffs it yeah and then like but it, oh but also my wife shouldn't know you exist like that's such a mind fuck. Yeah. and also like yeah. again it's like she comes on to robert de niro in the bar and it's it and then she tells nick nolte later it's like i i wanted to show you i wanted to make a point and it like as if she's invited this under herself 
Yeah. It's just mm. fucking gross. I think, too, what I have a problem with in this movie is that it does the thing that Game of Thrones does, where it's like, oh, you've got to show the brutality yeah. to really understand the brutality. And it's like, no, you don't. Uh, no, you don't. I think that you can express the horror and emotional trauma of, you know, sexual assault and rape without showing Robert De Niro biting Ileana Douglas's cheek off. <laughs> like, um, in the original, they prove that, because all you see is is really the, the aftermath, you know? It's the way that Barry Chase carries herself, it's the makeup on her face, it's the way that she refuses to speak to the police, and the way she apologizes to Greg about how her refusal to testify is going to endanger his wife and daughter, and then the way that she flees town. And when she tells Telly Savalle, it's like, you know, this is going to be all over the papers, you know, I'm someone's daughter, too. What are people going to think about me? And that so perfectly encapsulates what it is to be a victim and what it is to be a woman in a world where anything that happens to you had to have been invited in some way. And it, it takes that very subtle, I think, very sympathetic point and then takes it and it's like, well, how can we flip this into a way to make it exploitative and degrading and also emphasize that she made this happen? Yeah, it's, it's her fault. In the original, oddly enough, being from the 60s, it's a condemnation of that mindset. But then in this version, it's like it almost agrees with it. It's almost tacitly approving of what happened. I think the other issue I have is that in the original, yeah, obviously Robert Mitchum is going to have a large presence because he's Robert Mitchum and he's, you know, doing this incredible menacing performance throughout the entire movie. But it's still Greg's story. Whereas in this one, because Nick Nolte is so much weaker than De Niro in his performance, it's like all about De Niro and his character. And I, I think that he's never really adequately condemned for his view on the world or the way in which he thinks, because even at the very end, he still, cause like what was so good about the original ending is that the morality of Greg won out in the end. Like he chose not to kill him. And that was like a powerful act being like, I will not sink to your level. Whereas in this one, he watches De Niro drown as he's handcuffed to the sinking remnants of the houseboat and it's almost like a sort of winky face it's like does he die um can you be really sure and i don't know it just it's really weak in comparison i think um i mean obviously it's a not an ending that necessarily would have played in the 90s but um well also i think yeah like oh you know oh the banality of evil oh we all have this within ourselves it's like yeah i absolutely have it within myself to handcuff you know amando boat and watch him drown after he's attempted to rape my daughter. I absolutely, I totally have that. So that, that whole like, ooh, we could all do this. Oh, maybe we're all evil too. It's like, they're not quite the same evil. I don't no. think that um, that's entirely comparable. And that kind of like, I'm just, you know, a neutral third party observer. I'm just playing devil's advocate attitude towards, especially a movie that's again, about violence against women. It's like, mm, save it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think to what this movie does in a way that's like a disservice to women is that in the original, you always knew Robert Mitchum was a normal person. Mm -hmm. He was, I mean, not in the way that he thought, but he like wasn't superhuman. He could be anybody from anywhere that has this mindset and has this sort of fixation 
and violence within him. And I think that's where the strength lies because it really accurately portrays the horrors that women face, you know, like this kind of perpetrator could be anybody. Whereas in the remake, De Niro has this, like, he's like, oh, I train myself in prison not to feel pain. It's like, what is this? The world is not enough. You know, like the (laughs) villain from that, like, no, it's bullshit. Like, Let's get something straight here. I spent 14 years in an 859 cell surrounded by people who were less than human. My mission in that time was to become more than human. You see? Granddaddy used to handle snakes in church. Granny drank strychnine. I guess you could say I had a leg up, genetically speaking. What, you know, I like did push-ups over a bed of scorpions so now i can't feel pain like no he gets fucking torched with like literally like a makeshift flamethrower and he's like fine he just keeps trucking he he turns into michael myers at a certain point yeah and it's like i think and his like face is melting off his body because julia lewis throws like boiling water all over him and i think that really just like removes the reality Because it's like, oh, you know, only a real superhuman monster could be capable of such horrendous acts as he does. And it's like, no, no, ordinary people do this all the time. And that's the problem. Yeah, only a superhuman monster would, would, would feel these feelings and would act upon these feelings as opposed to, yeah, it could just be, you know, your weird, you know, your, your, your local creep. Which is what the Mitchum character is presented as. He's just, you know, he's just one of those guys who lives in every city, everywhere in the world, and he's just waiting to strike. Whereas the De Niro one, it's like, you see that him coming a mile away, too. Because yeah. Mitchum, because they're very different types of actors, Mitchum radiates this this intensity, but you have that feeling that it's all focused on you. Like, you really do get kind of the vibe that Greg is one of the only people who has this... Because he knows um, Mitchum's psychology so well, he 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 sees it. You know, he 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 understands it. And you know, when they're in the car, when Barry Chase and Mitchum are in the car going back um, to her place, she's like, "You're an animal. You're a wild animal." You know, like the idea that um, this horrible just malevolence that he he has within himself can be misinterpreted as something else like just misinterpreted as sex appeal whereas the Mitchum I mean the uh, De Niro character is so repulsive in every way that it kind of goes in this note where it's like well, he's so cartoonish and he's so ugly and he's hmm. so weird that Juliette Lewis is a stupid little idiot you know what I mean for for falling into his orbit or Ileana Douglas is like you know is is an idiot for for being drawn to him Whereas the Mitchum character is like, he's a good looking man. I mean, arguable, you know, caveat, because Mitchum in 1962 is looking worse for wear. But um, still looking better than Greg. So. Absolutely looking better than Greg. Greg looks like shit. I don't know what happened to Greg. Greg looks so much worse in this than in To Kill a Mockingbird, which is wild because as established, same year. I mean, it could have been a year like this one, though. True. <laughs> I'm looking very, I'm looking like To Kill a Mockingbird, Greg. That's how I was in March. Now, definitely Cape Fear, Greg. Maybe it was the stress of coming to work every morning, knowing that you're signing Robert Mitchum's checks, and he knows that he's a better actor than you are. <laughs> you're supposed to be Probably. the star of this movie, goddammit. You're supposed to be the star of this movie. You're funding this whole thing. You're paying for those little sandwiches that they have on that table. 
And Mitchum's eating all the little sandwiches. And then he's pissing all up in your car. And there's a lot of problems in this movie. Like, first of all, as we kind of alluded to, De Niro looks bizarre. Yeah. He had to bulk up a lot, I know, because there is a height difference between him and Nick Nolte. And, like, obviously Nick Nolte was a, a bigger guy than him. And he had to lose a lot of weight. And De Niro had to put on a lot of weight. Um, to sort of get that balance that they wanted. But, like, I mean, Greg is bigger than um, Robert Mitchum, but Robert Mitchum holds his weight in a very different way to Greg, which is why he looked more menacing. Greg is like an ironing board. Greg is like an ironing board. Greg holds all of his weight in, in, in like, his hips and thighs. Like, it's very... <laughs> it, it's what makes him feel so stolidly... Like, so stolid and also so solid. Both useful words. So solidly placed at any given time. You know, it's part of the reason why, like, if you watch him, watch him very early in his career. Look at something like Spellbound. And it's like, he is standing, like, he's affixed to the spot and he can't fucking move. Like, he is just, he has been bolted to the floor like uh, a girl playing a mermaid in an MGM musical in the 1940s. And at the bottom of a tank. And then, uh, but Mitchum holds it all in his chest, you know. He's, he's very broad-shouldered. Um, and so you definitely get this, this like real like yin and yang and that doesn't work with Nolte and De Niro. And I think that's why there's so many scenes where it's like, they're not actually like looking at each other as two individuals who are standing in the same shot. Like De Niro's sitting in a car talking to Nolte. They're, they're, they're looking at each other, both seated in a restaurant. Like it doesn't, they're not framed together in a shot the same way that that Greg and Mitchum are so many times. Also, can we talk about the idea that Nick Nolte, who was People's Sexiest Man Alive in 1992, now today looks like a seedy drifter ex-con? Nick Nolte looks like Robert De Niro in this movie now. (laughs) (laughs) That's his look, with like less teeth. Fewer teeth. Fewer teeth. I mean, it's pretty absurd that he was given that title in 1992. Yeah, he's not a handsome person. I, I don't get the Nick Nolte thing. Um, I've never got it. I always think it's like, if you're looking for someone to play a part that Nick Nolte would be in, why wouldn't you just put, like, Kurt Russell? Yeah, Kurt Russell, Kevin Costner, you know, there's, like, there's a lot of people who can give that. Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze. I don't get it. He doesn't strike me as a particularly adept actor. Or even, like, fucking Gary Busey in Point Break. That's the kind of vibe that Nick Nolte has now. (laughs) (laughs) He's just very much an actor of his period um i feel like this was a really weak time for the movie star that's why i i feel and i feel very strongly about this i feel that i think you can really close the door on the concept of the movie star with tom cruise i think tom i think tom cruise is the last real movie star in the clinical use of the term as it were with the idea being that it's someone who can sell tickets based on name alone I think for for most of America, at least, I think I think that's I think that's Tom Cruise. There are always going to be other exceptions, obviously, but Tom Cruise, I think, is the last movie star who who had the ability to open a theater, as it were, um, on the strength of his own name. And I think that well, that, and that and like and Zeno, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but but Tom really, I mean, Tom was was really the last movie star developed by Paramount Pictures. He was, he was the last one who had that kind of level of attention and incremental development that we associate kind of with the studio era. But overall, when you look at this particular period of time, it's like you look at the people who are stars and it's just like, what? None of this makes any sense, you know? Like Tom Hanks. And then there's everyone else who's not Tom Hanks, you know? It's just, it's really weird. It's a really weird period in the movies. I think it's different, like, for female stars, because they're definitely stronger female stars yeah. this time. So I guess what I'm trying to, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's a very weird time to remake Cape Fear. 
<laughs> it's a very odd point in, in time. I think other decades you could have swung it a different way, but Nick Nolte and, and Robert De Niro is not the right combination. It doesn't it doesn't work. You don't have that sense of sparring that you get from Peck and Mitchum. Obviously, Robert Mitchum is a much stronger actor, but it, it feels like a like a meeting of equals. Yeah, and I think too, like I think it's especially like exemplified in that scene where uh, because in this one, Nick Nolte watches his you know goons beat up Robert De Niro, uh, and he subsequently like makes a noise, and Robert De Niro is like, "I know you're there," kind of situation. And it's just like just Robert De Niro being off crazy and Nick Nolte doing nothing. That is an exact example of the entire movie. Yeah. Nick Nolte is really not doing or really not bringing anything in his performance, and. It's funny because he tried really, really hard to get this part. Um, and I don't think that Scorsese should have given it to him. <laughs> no. Who do we think Scorsese should have given the part to? I mean, I know what we're all thinking, but I don't think he was available. I- I'm sure he had some sort of half-baked new invention to be shilling at that point in time. <laughs> he probably had some daytime TV, talk show appearances scheduled. Rock has a pack schedule, as we all know. Um, busy <laughs> Even now. Even now. <laughs> He's busier than ever. See, this is tricky, though, because, like, we've we've talked about the importance of Peck as, like, the moral center. So you're you're trying to think of someone from 1991 who would be able to bring that morality to it, which Nick Nolte obviously does not do. But just in general, I don't think this movie has that morality in it. So yeah. it's like, it's kind of a fool's errand. I think that's a really good point. I was going to say Tom Hanks, but we hadn't, Philadelphia hadn't yet demonstrated that Tom Hanks could so well i don't know what you're calling his performance in money pit then (laughs) i wouldn't really call money pit a performance i call it more like an experience an act of war maybe (laughs) um i I don't really know i i I feel like i feel like it's just it's just one of those movies that it's like why remake it it's i i feel the exact same way about the um manchurian candidate remake and it's like i understand that on the surface you have a really wonderful cast but there is such a thing as the stars aligning. We can't underestimate that, but I, I, I don't know. I, we, there is such a. We saw this recently with this whole thing with with Ratchet, where the the guy who um, adapted One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for this like prequel series with Sarah Paulson was like, well, I wanted to take an existing intellectual property and like put my spin on it, and it's like, you know, you could just write something original, right? Yeah, yeah. You could just do that, or you could like find a book and adapt it, like the. <laughs> This is the problem. The problem with film versus theater is that theater is constantly, it's always about the the reinvention of a performance because the the text has to be really good. The text is what gives life to the performance um, because the text has to be endlessly kind of generative across time of new and interesting and varied looks of the human condition seen through the prism of different actors. But that's not the way film works. Film is about when it's made, where it's made, the specific individuals behind it, and one very specific hopefully cohesive, not always cohesive, interpretation of the material. So when you have a movie like the original Cape Fear or the original Manchurian Candidate, where for once out of all the movies that people make, things, the stars align, and you have a movie that is so powerful and so strong and so well-crafted, it's like, why would you fuck with that? Because you're almost never going to capture lightning in the bottle in in a bottle the same way. Because so many things can go wrong with a film. And you can't fix it. There is no... You can do reshoots, you can do very dramatic editing, you can have the film taken from you by the studio and recut or fucking portions of it directed by uh, another director. But 
you can't go out the next night and give a completely different performance. You know, you can't overhaul something in tryouts. It's it's not how it works. And I, I feel like it's just such an expression of unchecked ego to remake a movie like Cape Fear. <laughs> Scorsese really thought he was doing something. And he wasn't. He really wasn't. Yeah, I think... <laughs> To me, one of the biggest issues I have with this is, like, obviously this was made at a time, like, obviously why did he think it needed to be remade? I I feel this with a lot of um, remakes that they decide to do. It's like, why? When you've already got sort of the ultimate performance, why bother? But I know it's because they simply cannot think of anything new to do. But like they had it, they made this at a time where obviously the censorship was not going to be as great on whatever they decided to do, unlike uh, 1962. And the fact that they're not allowed to say the word rape in the original, but in this one, they're certainly allowed to show it, um, which leads me to the thing that I hate the most about this version is that the the Juliette Lewis character uh, is used in a way that makes me deeply uncomfortable Mm -hmm. the entire time. Like, because he directly contacts her, he like calls her, he builds some kind of relationship with her and like it's really insidious and he like lures her into this really horrible scene um, where he's like being sexually explicit and talking to her about like novels and then he puts his finger in her mouth and they kiss and it's horrific. It's a horrific scene but it's also like I feel like a child knows when they're in a situation that is not good for them. And I think what happens in this is that they take the childhood naivety to a whole new level that just doesn't feel true. Because, like, when you're a kid, you know when something's not right. Yeah. Deep down, you kind of always know. And, like, with someone looking like the way Robert De Niro fucking <laughs> looks, um, you would immediately know that something's not right. And I just really despise the way that her character is made out to be i mean obviously the academy does not agree with me but um yeah i just really don't like that angle i also really take issue with like the convergence of that with the way the sort of gaze that she's seen through like i think the uh Mm -hmm. the movie frames her very sexually we see her like in her underwear and shit and it's like i mean she was like 18 or whatever so i guess she's not a child actress being exploited but it's still still she's, love it she's portraying a child and they're really hammering home this like naive um personality trait and then like really also very heavily sexualizing her and it just it's so skeevy and in a way that feels like it's the fault of the filmmakers and not of the story you know i, I don't like yeah. it also because they i feel like in the original it's like there's there's no question that this circumstance is terrifying to her and that she doesn't welcome it and she doesn't want it. But there's this kind of weird note in this one that's like the stirrings of young womanhood. And mm-hmm. mm, don't like that. Don't like that at all. It just feels like a very male way to interpret yeah. that experience. Yeah, it doesn't work. And um, that particular scene in the in the theater where... And I also don't like kind of... So when, when Robert De Niro calls her on the phone initially, he tells her that he's her new drama teacher and he's calling all the students in the class, blah, blah, blah. So then she goes to this theater ostensibly to meet her new drama teacher. And then eventually, like midway through this incredibly long sequence, by the way... Um, it's so long. It's so long. Oh and, God. you know, I have a lot of respect for, for Thelma Schoemaker as an editor. 
Not her, not her best work, by the way. But um, she's like, you're not really my drama teacher, are you? And he's like, would you be mad if I said I wasn't? And she's like, no. <laughs> Wait a second. Um, where are you from? Where am I from? Yeah. Where do you think I'm from? I don't know, but... If I told you, you were going to get mad at me? No. I'm from the Black Forest. That's funny. You're not the um, drama teacher, are you? Maybe I'm the big bad wolf. It's like, so she's consenting to this, like, weird, you know, ah, you know what I mean? Like, ah, like, like, almost like she knows that he's not, but she's just going to stick around and find out what happened. Gross. And this is all happening in a movie where we've already kind of been told that, you know, the Ileana Douglas character was like a little bit to blame for what happened to her, you know? So it's just like, it's this whole line running through the whole thing that's just... Also, the fact that this was filmed in 1991, this is sort of the bit, like, Stranger Danger was a thing. (laughs) And, like, previous to the scene in the theatre, Juliet Lewis is aware that someone is out there, like, stalking her family. Killing her dog. Killing her dog. Oh, yeah, the dog's dead. And when she's, like... Dolphy's like, you know, he, might have, he killed your mom's dog or whatever. And she's like, maybe he didn't. You shouldn't say that. Maybe he didn't yeah, do it. it. Who do you think did it? Yeah, I think, yeah. I just don't like like that characterization at all. And it's not to say that, you know, some 15-year-olds aren't naive and some might not be able to discern a good person from a bad person. But it's like, it's not their fault. They're a child. But it's like, I just don't like the way that it's played in this movie. It feels very... Icky. It's a teenage girl written by a man. You know, it's just yeah, like very much so. consummate that. Also, there's this idea that if Jessica Lange were like this like self-involved career woman who's, you know, at one point struggles with depression over her husband's infidelity and makes him go to therapy, maybe her daughter wouldn't almost get molested. <laughs> like, mm, mm, yeah, you know, I will just say that Jessica Lange and me have the same profession. And I've got to say, I do like the advancements the career has made <laughs> uh, in the interim years because lithography seems fucking horrible. You're glad so you don't just I'm, have a huge... I'm glad computers exist now. So... <laughs> But I mean, I don't have a boathouse to show for it, so. I also feel like it's a very weird, conspicuous uh, thing to take the maid from the original, who we see in, like, two shots maximum, who's black, to replace her with, like, this, like, very visible, like, Latina nanny housekeeper character. Who is murdered, like. Yes. And then De Niro, like, steals effectively her face. That's very Which odd. is a really weird Mrs. Doubtfire moment. <laughs> which is. Yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire stole it from this movie. Because that whole scene is crazy because the, like, is it the private detective or the police officer? Private detective. private detective sort of sets up this, like, tripwire, which I don't know why the family would still be in the house for this particular ambush. But um, they set up this tripwire to try and catch De Niro, and it's like this really weird sort of face-off shot with the um, detective staring into the eyes of a teddy bear that he's rigged to move if anyone sort of comes into the house through any of the entries. And then, like, we see it move, and then it cuts to a scene of, like, the um, detective sitting down ready to eat, and De Niro dressed as the maid. Uh, and it's like, who would buy this? <laughs> who would open the door and be like, oh, yep, that's fine. That's obviously the very bulky maid. And then he 
De Niro proceeds to strangle, well, garrote the detective with a piano wire that he's stolen from Nick Nolte's piano. Because he's a jack of all trades. A lawyer, uh, a racquetball player, a (laughs) piano player. Also, it's got that goddamn, that horrible, stupid, very visible Chekhov's gun thing where it's like, where's my piano wire? Has anyone seen my piano? And just Glenn's just like, I don't know what the hell you're talking has anyone seen, were you monkeying around no i pulled the piano wire come on really marty that's the best like, you could do <laughs> but it's also like going to the trouble of removing a piano wire no one would do this but also it's very funny that scene afterwards where nick nolte slips in the blood um, <laughs> yes. and, like completely ruins the pristine crime scene i would also like to point out that elmer bernstein did the score for this film and just like took Bernard Herman's score and like was like okay job done I put in a few like extra little bits and then it's done it's like when Beyonce got songwriting credit on Ave Maria (laughs) same situation I feel like if you're not going to take again the moral center of the movie the very strong condemnation of violence against women just change that up you know don't make him a, a rapist who's come out of prison. Turn him into something else. Make him, I don't know, spin it. You know, if you're, if you're trying to do a new and interesting twist on it, some other grudge that he's got against Nick Nolte, uh, another kind of crime, another kind, you know, I, I very, it feels like it's in very poor taste to retain that mm-hmm. theme from the original and then not portray the same, use the, display the same respect towards that subject. Like, just make it something else. Make him, you know... a uh, a drug dealer or, or something and then make it about, you know, I'm sure I'm not that I'm saying Scorsese would have handled that sensitively either, but just do something else, you know? That's the point of doing a remake. The thing that takes it from being you know, just kind of corny and shitty to being, like, reprehensible in my eyes is that it's effectively a movie that hates women that's about how it's bad to hate women. And it's like, what the yeah. fuck is <laughs> What is this? I don't want yeah. it. Yeah, I, I just, I, yeah. It just it bothers me so much because it's like the the fact that the 1962 version is much more sensitive. It's like damning on the quality of your remake. Um, <laughs> if the passage of time has not made you more sympathetic uh, to the plight of women in this movie, but I mean, I guess that's a reflection on Martin Scorsese that needs he needs to carry with him and take to his grave. Um, He's a coward. Marty's a coward. And I have to say that I feel like if you were to remake this movie today, it should be about somebody getting mad over an eBay transaction. (laughs) I think that'd be really good. (laughs) Like um, Nick Nolte bought something on eBay and then he claimed that it never arrived. And then he left like bad feedback and Robert De Niro decided that he was going to kill people have been murdered over that, like selling fake stuff over ebay well there you go ripped from the headlines the the only good thing about this remake is i think robert mitchum's role as the police officer he's like to nick nolte just like why don't you just kill him i'm not explicitly telling you to kill him but also wink maybe you could just (laughs) wink shoot him or something wink and Nick Nolte's like, I could never do that, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, hovels off. And that's when, obviously, that iconic line from our intro, well, pardon me, all over the place, uh, is uttered. If all this is something personal between you and the girl and Katie. Personal? If, I mean, all right, come on, Lieutenant. All right, what do you imply? Only that there are some things that are better handled quietly, not by the police. <laughs> This, this Katie guy is planning to rape my wife, but it's not your problem anymore. I can't bust someone for planning to rape your wife. You're a lawyer, Mr. Bowden. You know that damn well. Thanks all the same. 
the way I'd handle it. What? Follow restraining order? I already did. Just think of this fella Katie as a tiger. The trick is to get him out of the brush. How do we do that? You stake out a couple of your goats and hide in a tree. What are you suggesting, Lieutenant? That I use my family's bait? And then what? What, am I going to hope that this psychopath attacks my wife and child? And then what? Blow his head off? I'm a law officer. It would be unethical of me to advise a citizen to take the law into his own hands. So uh, I suppose you must have misunderstood me. Oh, I guess I must have. Well, pardon me, all over the place. And I think that it's interesting to see that both Robert Mitchum's and Gregory Peck's roles have changed in this version for their cameos because obviously now Robert Mitchum is sort of a good guy. And while Gregory Peck is not necessarily a bad guy, he is the um, defense lawyer for Robert De Niro. And I mean, he's not a good guy because he does sort of get him off to murder like two people. King Solomon could not have adjudicated more wisely, Your Honor. I am so offended by the Philistine tactics of Mr. Bowden. I petitioned the ABA for his disbarment on the grounds of moral turpitude. Now, if you will excuse us, my client, oh, son, is due back at the hospital for the results of his numerous x-rays. I was going to say, it's also really weird that um, the Martin Balsam character in this movie is Fred Thompson, who you guys might remember ran for president in 2008. And um, also Martin Balsam is in this, he plays the judge, and he looks like Antonin Scalia. So, <laughs> I mean, Gregory Peck in this looks like Colonel Sanders, so all he needs is like, you know, his little thin bow tie and bam, bucket of chicken. Do you think Greg ever had fried chicken? I can't imagine Greg eating food. Does food count as recreation? <laughs> I was say I can imagine him like drinking like motor oil and eating bolts, but I can't imagine him like sitting yeah. eating human food. Just like a bucket of like nuts and bolts. It, it's just it's weird. It does I don't think his digestive system works. He's like got like an Edward Cullen situation going on. That's why he's dead. Well this was his last movie. But the thing is like he didn't die until like twelve years after this. He was just like, that's enough. He finally realized that he should just hang it up. I, I, you know, I, it's a, it's a good, no, it's not a good note to go out on. Actually, it's a bad note to go out on. We can't all have an on Golden Pond kind of moment, you know? That's not going to happen for most of us, especially because Gregory Peck's not Henry Fonda, and he could never be Henry Fonda. Probably a better dad than Henry Fonda, though. I just want to drop a spicy take right now, in addition to all the other spicy takes in this episode. My feeling about Martin Scorsese, and I'll stand by this, is that Scorsese just kind of moved into the void left by Francis Ford Coppola being the opposite of prolific and making like two movies a decade. And Scorsese slid right in there. And I feel like so many of his movies, and not just because they're the same topic, I feel like stylistically derivative of of Coppola. He's not the director Coppola is. He has never made a movie as good as The Conversation. He will never make a movie as good as The Conversation. He just made The Departed, which just has too many lines about microprocessors. So um, I feel like this movie is is really emblematic of a lot of the negative things about Martin Scorsese, like his bad taste and his pretty strong apathy towards anything resembling a female plot line. I, I think the only thing that Martin Scorsese has ever done right in his life is stand up against um, Marvel movies. He's right, and you should say that. That is true. Yeah, are, <laughs> that's about it. I don't. I, I look at his filmography, and I like. I'm like, I don't resonate with any of these movies. These aren't for me. 
I do love a lot of Scorsese movies, but I just feel like he's gotten to this like weird point in the culture where because he's one of the last like really like classical filmmakers that he's able to become this like arbiter of taste. And it's like that taste isn't always necessarily on display. Um, and again, not to say that there isn't anything wrong with, not to say that there isn't, yeah, there isn't anything wrong with Francis Ford Coppola's movies, you know, I could go on and on, but I just feel like there's like this weird, um, it's like the difference between Britney and Christina, you know, Christina was never going to be that girl. <laughs> she will never be that girl. And that's, Scorsese is the Christina in this situation. Francis Ford Coppola is an asshole, but he's a much better filmmaker. He had the good sense not to remake Cape Fear. So that, that's enough alone. You know. Yeah. I can see Francis Ford Coppola releasing Toxic. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Okay, well, um, I guess we'll just say definitely watch the first version. Don't bother with the with the remake. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Watch the Simpsons episode. Yeah. True, yeah. true. Yeah. Although I have to say that is one thing I would change about the original was I would have an HMS pinafore kind of situation going on there. Um, <laughs> I definitely think it would have been funnier if um, Robert Mitchum was hanging underneath Greg's car. Yeah. All the way to Cape Fear. And then if he just stepped on so many rakes. There's a lot of things that can always you can improve upon any movie. J. Lee Thompson could have improved upon this movie. I think he's dead though, and I think he was probably when did J. Lee Thompson die? 1973 when he fell out that window. When he... <laughs> 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 oh my god! Let's see what year did he actually um, die? He died in 2002. 2002 in British Columbia. Pod. I've been there. Personal life, death. He died of congested heart failure. On <laughs> what, you've been there dying in British Columbia? <laughs> yeah, in Sook, Sook, British Columbia, a district municipality on the southern tip of Vancouver Island. And he died um, 88 years old, August 30th, 2002. Wonderful day to die. Wow. Okay. That's so weird. What? He, um, his last sort of noted credit for a movie is that he was the boom operator on the film... Bride of Chucky, uh, 1998. <laughs> what the fuck? So, what? Well, hold on. Pardon me? Jaylee How Thompson? the mighty have fallen. <laughs> yes. Whoa. That is sad. <laughs> I'm like, that's making me sad. I know. How do you go from directing Cape Fear to being the boom operator on Bride of Chucky? I'm not seeing that anywhere on his IMDb page. Where are you seeing that? On his Wikipedia. Oh my god. This is so sad. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like legitimately bummed. Like that bummed me out. That's a horrible note to end on. That's <laughs> an even worse to, like thing to end on than Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. That's so much worse. <gasps> oh my god, he made Eye of the Devil. <laughs> I love Eye of the Devil. Have we ever seen Eye of the Devil? Have we ever watched that? David Niven plays this guy. I don't think we watched it together. He plays this nobleman who has to return home to his, like, ancestral homeland, which is this, like, French, like, vineyard, right? And then the, apparently, like, the secret sauce that keeps the vineyard operating is that every, like, 
hundred years or whatever, they have to sacrifice one of the children in the family. And That's cool. Yeah, and Deborah Carr is like, there's something, something is gonna bad is gonna happen. It's like, yeah, he's gonna sacrifice your one of your kids. Anyway, Donald Pleasance is in that too. Wow, this is literally so sad. I can't. I'm sorry. I, I can't get over it. I can't get over it. That's so sad. <laughs> That's, that's this is probably so the most apt use of it's the sad, it's so sad. Well, that sad sort of line. This is this the is most really, apt. Yeah. Wow. Oh my. Wow. His IMDb page also says that he was a great fan of director Martin Scorsese. His favorite film was The King of Comedy, 1982. Gregory Peck once said there were only four directors he could trust to tell him whether or not he was faking his performance: Alfred Hitchcock, George Cukor, William Wyler, and Thompson. Why do you need a director to tell you that you're not faking your performance? Um, because, like, they need to, like, remove the circuit board in his head and, like, flick the switch. <laughs> That's how <laughs> I imagine. It's kind of like, you know, they just need to reprogram him. This man was born in 1914 and they had him holding the boom mic on Bride of Chucky? <laughs> That's elder abuse. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we have to, we have to, we have to end this because I'm not going to be able to get over it. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening, um, everybody. Please let us know what you thought. If you like the remake better than the original, uh, please unfollow. Um, <laughs> uh, you can rate, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Um, you can reach out to us at BasketPod on Instagram and Twitter. And, yeah, stay safe. That's it. Bye. 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 See, Mitch McConnell wears a mask in public. However, Mitch McConnell, you might remember, is married to Elaine Chow, who is Secretary of Transportation. And do I think that everyone in the cabinet meetings wears masks? Absolutely not. So she goes home to him at the end of the night with her mouth probably, presumably, full of COVID. And then they share, you know, they swap their protein strands. And um, you're imagining, like, a much more fruitful domestic life for mitch mcconnell than perhaps is the reality <laughs> i think that mitch has a very fulfilling personal I, I think that mitch is quite a romp in the sack i'll give you that um and come on let me cut you a brownie while they're still hot dad we're kind of edgy right now I'd appreciate you not coming in my room screaming and brandishing a butcher knife. Right. Oh, right. The Sideshow Bob thing. Oh, I'm sorry, boy. Mark, do you want to see my new chainsaw and hockey mask? Ah! Oh, sorry. What am I thinking? <laughs>